Titled the message this morning, a love that dispels or destroys fear. Could you imagine a love that destroys fear? I mean, how our lives are so controlled by fear. Are they not? I mean, fear that I might get sick or fear that I might lose my job or fear that there's going to be a nuclear war or fear that my kids are going to not behave or fear that my kid won't sleep through the night or fear that I won't have kids or that I'll won't ever get my kids out of the house. I mean, whatever. We have all these different fears yeah, that we live in. And yet, what, what if there was a love that could dispel, could destroy all fear? And fear that I'm going to get sick. Fear that I'm going to love, I'm going to lose a loved one. Fear of loss. Fear of failure. Fear of man. I mean, we are, we are bombarded by fear. And I, I don't, the message this morning is not about fear. But it's about a love that could dispel, could destroy, could cast out, could get rid of of all fear. Does that, that love exist? Is it possible? I mean, for that matter, do we even know what love is? In fact, someone once said, you know, what's love got to do? Got to do with it. Because love's a confusing thing. I mean, for a guy, you ask a guy, what, what's love? And they'd be like, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, really, yeah, what is love? Uh, you ask a, a lady and they're like, well, there's love and then there's love, love. And then there's like love, 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 you know, and they just echo the word. Right? And there's, but the reality is none of us really know how to explain love or how to experience it or have we experienced it or we, you know, and, and yet God's word gives us some insight. But if you look to the, to the world to define these things, to understand these things, you look to other religions, you look to uh, Hinduism or Buddhism for that matter, you know, love is the absence of affections for temporal earthly material things and so when you lose somebody that you love and you grieve the reason you grieve is because you're too attached to things to people well that doesn't really comfort me when i lose a loved one okay when when a bunch of people die how does that bring comfort it doesn't bring comfort when you say that well you know it's better just not to love stuff just to just to be okay just eliminate love and affections for Things and relationships and stuff and whatever and that that's better. But that, that's really not an answer. You look to um, humanism, atheism. You know, just uh, humanism really is the the methodology of our day. And you know, how does the secular humanist, how does the secularist explain love? Well, love is it's chemical, it's naturalistic, it's just just the way we've evolved. It's just a kind of a chemical response that helps with the preservation of humanity. I mean, animals love their they're little babies and and that's how they they're you know mother dog loves their puppies and that's how they puppies survive or whatever but then there's other animals that will like eat their young right and so that just that doesn't work and so we evolved we have these chemical these affections are simply just chemical responses that's supposed to help with our preservation of humanity and that's how we have evolved to be i mean so your love for your kids and love for others and is simply just a chemical response with really no significant meaning that, that doesn't doesn't give comfort you know how can you how can love be understood in a world where uh, we have divergent political groups or religious groups or whatever that will love in certain areas and yet they'll hate in other areas vilify the people that don't think like we do we make them the enemy and so our people are good and we love our people. We love people that think like us. But if they don't think like us, then we don't love them. And that is not love. 
That's not love as we find it in God's word, nor is it tolerance of all things. That's just impossible for somebody to be tolerant of all things. It never, never happens. It is confusing. It's confusing. Ravi Zacharias, he calls love the highest of human ethics, the peak of intellectual and emotional alignment, which places value and worth on another person as something to be protected, something to be valued. Whether they agree with you, disagree with you, whether whether they're like you, not like you, doesn't matter. Love is to value somebody different than you because they're creating the image of God. So you put value and worth upon them as being another image bearer of God. But if we look at first John chapter four, verse seven, we can get some insight this morning. And, and I hope to do that as we spend some time in this passage of scripture. So where does love come from? First, we find in verse seven, a love that destroys all fear. Well, what, where does it where does love come from? Well, first, we understand beloved. It says in verse seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because he because God is love. And so we understand that that love is from God. In that passage, we're commanded and we are compelled to love one another. It's mentioned. And so love is from God and love finds its origin in God. Love is from God. Love also is evidence, it gives evidence to the new birth. Whoever loves has been born of God. And again, this word for love here is is a the word of agape, and it's talking about a love that is unconditional. It's not a love like, I love you if you like my team, right? I, I love you if we um, have the same friend groups or the same values or watch the same shows or listen to the same music, or I love you if we have the same cultural views or i love you if you're what this is i I love you period i i I just i love you not upon conditions it's not contingent upon your likability just i I love you what how do you love people different than you how do you love people that are unlovable or difficult to love right How, how is that possible well it's possible because it finds its origin in god and it is the evidence of the new birth it's evidence of being a New person being alive spiritually where God's presence comes inside you and you love because now you have the presence of God spirit in your heart. It also evidences a growing knowledge of God for somebody to say, man, I, I'm I really know a lot of the, I'm a really strong, mature Christian. Well, that's evidenced by greater love. Not necessarily greater knowledge. Now, again, I'm all about some knowledge. We need to know God's word. I mean, last week we talked about the necessity, particularly in our day and age, of discernment and understanding. And that comes from knowing God's word. And oh, that God would make us a people that hasn't isn't looking for milk. But man, we are we chew on some meat across life. We want to get meat. We want to be challenged to go deeper and further and stretched. And we want to understand God's word. We don't want to just just dance upon the top, okay? We want to go deep and get rooted and grounded in the Word of God and in the love of God. But what value is knowledge apart from love? It is no proof of maturity and it's no proof of growth if there's not, uh, there's no proof of growth if there's not love. Love evidence is a growing knowledge of God, a continuous knowledge and continuous results of being born again. And so uh, verse eight, anyone who does not love does not know God, 
The other observation we have is if there's no love, then there's no God. I'm not saying that God doesn't exist, but I'm saying you can't say that God is present in your life if you don't love other people, particularly those difficult to love. No love, there's no God. The absence of love evidences the absence of God in your life. When there is an absence of love, there is an evidence that is evidence of the absence of God's manifested presence in one's life. Absence of love evidences the absence of God. And so we understand, and understanding love, we understand that love is from God. And then secondly, love, that God is love. Because God is love. The Bible simply says that. God is spirit. It also says God is love. God is love. This is a critical thing. This is not to say that God is equal to love. And therefore, um, love is God, because then, then, then love would be the focus of our worship. And for a lot of people, they've taken that verse and they have, they have taken it out of context and they have defined God as love and love as God. And so the chief goal of life is love. Because there's a whole lot of people that, that's, that's drives a lot of people's, um, language and efforts and they're just, if you just love, just love people, just this love people. And that is to be like God. And that is of God. Because God is love. Love is God. And, and that's interchangeable. And that, that is idolatry, quite frankly. It's idolatry. We're elevating a trait of the Creator above the Creator. There's a problem with that. See, that, that is, and it also is a diminishing of love. It actually reduces love. It doesn't elevate it to the highest place. It actually minimizes it and lowers it. Let me try to help you understand that. In uh, Knowledge of the Holy, there's a chapter on the love of God. And uh, A.W. Tozer, he explains it this way. The words, God is love, mean that love is an essential attribute of God. Love is something true of God, but it is not God. It expresses the way God is in his unity, a unitary being. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, unified. As do the words holiness, justice, faithfulness, and truth. Because God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. So this is where love becomes really pretty amazing. Okay, So to say God is love, love is God, that's it. That's God, you know, is God holy? Eh. Is God just? Is God righteous? I mean, it doesn't matter. God's loving. And that's the only value I really care about God. Well, you, you, to do that is not biblical, and you're really diluting and diminishing God to something you really, we don't want. We don't want. Why? Because God's immutable. He doesn't mutate. He doesn't change. And to say that God is immutable, get this. Okay, it's beautiful. Like a final place. Because God is immutable, he always acts like himself. And because he is a unity, he never suspends one of his attributes in order to exercise another. What does that mean? God's love never trumps God's justice or his holiness or his righteousness or his immutability. God doesn't change because of his love. God doesn't diminish his holiness because of his love. God doesn't diminish his justice because of his love. But, but the flip side of that is God is more loving because of his justice. God is more loving because he's immutable. God is more loving because he's all righteous and all knowing and all ever present and all powerful. And so God, from God's other known attributes, we may learn much about his love. 
We can know, for instance, that because God is self-existent, meaning that, that nobody ever started God, okay, nobody birthed God, God didn't just pop up as a chemical react, God has always been and always will be. Do I understand that? No. Do you? No. Will anybody? No. But God always was, okay? He's self-existent. So his love has no beginning because he's eternal. His love can have no end because he's infinite. It has no limit. God's infinite. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. Man, we the loftiest poem, most beautiful declarations of love are just silly in presence of an all-loving God. You know, nothing defines us quite like our affections. You, you know that? Nothing defines you like your That which you love the most is what defines you. It's what defines you. So if your love is for a person, well, then you're defined by that love. If your love is for a thing or for stuff or for a chemical or for a pleasure or for a, that, that defines you in the limit of its capacity to receive, okay, to receive love and to give love back. That, that limits the, really who you are. Nothing expands the soul like love for an infinite God because God being infinite, there's no limit to the capacity of his love for us. And therefore, there's no limit to the capacity of love that he can receive from. It. There's never an end to what there is to love about God. There's not a day that we're like, man, I love God. I love him with it, but I'm kind of I'm bored with him. And I'd like another God because I've loved him as much as there is to be these to be loved. Yet there's nothing on earth that doesn't going to have a limit to our capacity to love it. It's just going to get old. We're just going to want a new one. Or, or it's going to get different. Or it's going to let us down. It's going to disappoint us. It's going to die. Or it's going to <clears throat> grow sick. Or it's going to go away. Or we're going to lose it. But God's love is infinite. Can't be lost. Doesn't grow old. Doesn't change. Is infinite. And so to say that God is love. And love is from God. Is, is to open the reality of love to another level. Let me try to put it this simple way. <clears throat> Psalms 139 says this of, of God's love for you. It says that that while you slept last night, God's affections, his love for you outnumbered the sands, the grains of the sands of the seas. Next time you go to the beach, you just scoop up some sand, you're at a playground or whatever, and just drop them from your hand and let them just roll out. And as you see those grains falling to the earth, each one represents the thoughts of God for you last night. Not for us last night, but for you last night, for me last night. God is infinite in His love. So He's infinite in His ability to infinitely love each one of us infinitely. Okay, to, to outlove the love of God, okay, <clears throat> would be like, and it's about being in a, in a rainstorm, in, in a boat, in a, in a vast, endless ocean, in a tsunami, okay, rain pouring down, um, all over us and you're trying to you know with a coffee can trying to scoop out the water out of the boat 
to keep this thing afloat. You did that, that you'd be more likely to succeed in that than you could at at overcoming or defining or out loving the love of God. I mean, it God's love is beyond our comprehension. It is vast and without limit. Because God is vast and without limit and he is faithful and he is just. And God does not compromise one element of who he is because of another. He is just infinitely loving. Well, there's much more to say about God's love, so I, I, I gotta move on and maybe we'll talk about that more some other day. But exploring God's love, how do we find some more truths in these passages? Well, look at verse 9. Here's some more truths about God's love. In this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Meaning, again, that God has absorbed the wrath that we deserved in Christ. He's absorbed the full payment of God's punishment for our sins has all been fulfilled. God's anger all been poured out in Christ. And so he sent his son to absorb the anger, wrath of God for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and that he is in us because he has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world let me stop there so verse nine and this is love that god has manifest made manifest among us that god sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him how do we know god really loves us well that he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. He sent his only son to come rescue us, to give us life. Us, We who were his enemies who had sinned against God, he sent him to come and pursue us. That How do you define love any more than that? I mean, Jesus said there's no greater definition of love than that a man would lay his life down for another. That's love. And Jesus is the extreme example of that as God has loved us by sending his son to die for us. So God's love is visible. We see this in God sending his sending of his son. We see this in a love that's unconditional and unmerited. How, how do I know that? Well, because verse 10, it says in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. You ever notice it's easy to love people that love you. It's hard to love people that don't love you. This is difficult. God's perfect at it. God's never loved anyone. That loved him first. I love getting in our arguments with my children about, you know, um, I love you. No, I love you. I love you more. No, I love you more. <laughs> you couldn't even speak. You couldn't walk. You couldn't eat. You didn't even, you weren't even breathing air in this world before I loved you. You were in the womb. You were just a little, little speck. Okay. You didn't even know. I mean, you couldn't even. You didn't even have a heart beating yet, and I, we loved you. We loved you before you. I mean, 
several years old before you could even respond to and know the love uh, that we have for you. That, that's how a child, they, but they think, oh no, I love you, mom, dad. No. And then they're like, my cookie, you know, <laughs> five seconds later, right? You know, my this, my that, I want this, I want that. And they get so mad. I mean, how can a kid be so loving and yet so selfish at the same time? And yet we love them unconditionally and giggle at their mistakes and their little rebellion sometimes we just think it's so fun look at them so funny they think that they are stronger than we are and it's so cute that's when they're younger when they're teenagers we're like you know i need a bat tasers you know we talk about spare the rod spoil the child i mean but this is you know the tasers weren't even invented when proverbs was written i mean you want you wonder you know if that would be different anyway i don't know but um, God, I don't taste my kids. I'm just, for the record, just in case anybody's listening. Um, God's love is visible and sending his son. It's unconditional. It is unmerited. This is what true love is. It's, it's to be, it's to love unconditionally. Nothing. So uh, thirdly, it's, it's a love that is sacrificial and just. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I was talking to uh, my kids. We were talking about different religions, and they had some questions about why different people do different things. And um, and w- they were asking about some other Eastern religions. And uh, we were talking about how they, a lot of times, a lot of people around the world, they live in fear constantly because they're afraid of the spirits of their ancestors or demons coming back to hurt them, to make them suffer, to cause um, calamity or disaster. When somebody gets sick, it's because a demon is tormenting them. When somebody gets um, loses their job or um, gets hurt or their crops don't grow like they hope they would or anything bad happens. It must be because we did something wrong or somebody else did something wrong that caused us to have consequences. And so they try to appease their gods by giving them fruit or money or wearing certain beads or doing certain things or doing whatever they can do that the witch doctor or the whatever person in their town or spiritual leader tells them to do. They'll do anything, leverage whatever resources, money, time, whatever they have to be able to do whatever they can so that they don't have to live in fear. And so when when we say that God is the propitiation, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, it's not that we had to pay God off so we didn't have to live in fear anymore. It's a God that knows that he has to deal with our sin. Again, God is one of his chief attributes is his love, but also is his justice and his holiness. And he has to deal with sin. And so God graciously, lovingly does not give us what we deserve, does not accept our sacrifices that we throw out before him going, OK, thank you for that token. I'm, I'm, I see that token. Yes, I see that. I see that banana and that apples and the fruit and whatever you left there. I see you trying to work so hard at your church, trying to be such a good person. I see you trying to trying to work really hard at being so nice and this and that. I, I see that, and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and count that as part of your payment for your sins. No, no, he he says you you never he'll never do enough to pay for your sins, and so I'm going to send my son, and he's going to come in your place, and I'm going to pour my wrath on him, and he'll absorb it all perfectly, completely, and. And I will not just love unconditionally and unmeritedly, but sacrificially and justly. I will love in a just way where I will pay for the consequences of your sin. And that is love. God's love is visible. It is expressed. He has expressed his love in sending his son into the world. It's also contagious. God's love is 
contagious in verses 11 through 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's a logic there. God has loved us in an unconditional, unmerited way. God has sent his son unconditionally, unmeritedly to, to be a sacrifice to to absorb God's wrath on, on our behalf when we deserved the wrath of God, sinning against the perfect God. It's not that God was mean and we were mean, but we were meaner. And so God, you know, no, it, God was perfect and we were wrong and we sinned against him, cosmic treason. And yet he has pursued us and provided a sacrifice for us. And so if God can forgive me, if God can love me, when I, when I did not deserve it. How can I, how can I not love other people? Even though they might be unlovable at times, even though they might be difficult to love at times. It, it, that's inconceivable because God's love is contagious when you really experience the unconditional love of God. So if you have a hard time loving other people, it's because you are not aware yet of how unlovable you are. See, the reason we have a hard time loving other people, forgiving other people, accepting other people is because we think that we are more loving and acceptable than we really are. And we do not have an accurate view of how unlovable we really are. We don't see our hearts and see how disgusting and prideful and selfish and self-serving and self-preserving our hearts are. I mean, sometimes we get little glimpses here and there and we're like, yeah, I'm not perfect. But we don't at no point do we have a full view of how unlovable and disgusting we are. And the sin in our lives in the eyes of God. And yet. And yet. In your worst day. With your worst attitude. With your most unlovingness. You know, God sends his son to die on the cross. For us to come and to pursue us in a love relationship. I mean if God would love us like that. If God so loved us. We also ought to. In fact it's really. There's a moral obligation there. We are obligated morally to love one another. Not that we should. Not that it's a nice idea. It would be good. It'd be good, guys, if we'd love each other. You don't have to, but it'd be good. No. You, you, you are morally obligated. You're going to receive God's love freely. Then we have to love others Freely, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That word perfected means brought to completion and to its goal. I'll give you a few more points here. <clears throat> Verses 13 through 14. By this we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And so God's love is visible, it's contagious, but it's also Spirit-empowered. It's also empowered by God's Spirit, Holy Spirit-empowered. So not only are we compelled and morally obligated to love, God nicely, graciously has sent His Spirit to enable us to do what we can't do on our own. And the fruit of God's Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. 
And so God is enabling, empowering us to do it. And so when you love other people that are unlovable or difficult to love, it's not because you're just such an amazing person. It's because you have submitted, humbled, yielded yourself to God's spirit. And you, by faith, are trusting in the power of almighty God to help you love people as you have been loved. And it is the Holy Spirit empowered. And I think one of the reasons why we have such a hard time loving other people is because we have a, such a hard time allowing God's Spirit to control us and to empower us. And we try to do it on our own efforts, by our own lists and our own rules and our own um, definitions rather than just loving through God's Spirit. God's love is Holy Spirit empowered. God's love also gives confidence. Gives confidence. In verse 15, look at this. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is and, and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love of God, the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in him loves uh, in, in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, second time he says, is love perfected, brought to its completion, brought to its logical conclusion, with us, so that we may have, here's the word, confidence. For the day of judgment. One of the things that God's love does for us is it gives us. When we, when we sense a supernatural ability to love somebody who spits in our face. When we, when we sense a supernatural ability to love somebody who, who uh, shows unkindness towards us. That is evidence. Gives us confidence. That we know God. When somebody does something to you and you get mad and you get angry and you want to punch them, that does not evidence. Does not give you confidence that the love of God is in you. Funny thing happened this week. I can't remember the phrase, but Lily and Caroline, ten-year-old, um, four-year-old, were um, were talking and Lily said something to Caroline. I can't remember what it was, but she said like, um, "Can you bring me a plate or so- something?" Like, I don't know. And Caroline thought she said, "Can you spit in my face?" And innocently, honestly, Caroline just walked over and was like, you know, it spit in Lily's face. You know, and she's Caroline's like she picked the right person to misunderstand because, you know, if anybody else, including me, was to spit in our face, it would not go well. Right. But um, but Lily was just like, why did you do that? And she said, I thought you said that spit in your face. No, I didn't. I said that I wanted you to bring me a plate or whatever it was. And she, oh, OK, I'm so sorry. You know, it was very, you know, you know, that's the love of God. I mean, because I would not be compelled to love quite so nicely as she did. But it gives us confidence. And then it also destroys all fear. That's the main thought in the introduction. There is no fear in love, but perfect love. Love brought to its completion. Love casts out all fear, destroys all fear, dispels all fear. For fear has to do with punishment. The reason we fear is because we, we are afraid of being punished, getting what we deserve or getting what we don't think we deserve. We're, we're afraid of something being leveraged against us that we don't feel like is right. And so we live under fear of something happening. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so in, in conclusion, God's love makes the visible, the invisible visible. Makes the invisible visible. Verses 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So lest you think that if there's not a moral obligation to love your brother, again, this is the commandment we've received from him. If you love God, love your brother. Love your brother. So what does this mean? Well, let, let me just give you a couple closing thoughts and we're done. Our, our invisible love for God is evident in our visible love for our brother. In other words, Loving those difficult to love, uh, it forces us to reflect and to draw strength from God who first loved us. And now we are able to love in response by faith, not by sight. And so uh, let me back up. God's invisible love for God, uh, the, our invisible love for God is evident in our visible love for our brother. We can't see that you love God. I mean, I love God. Man, I'm just so in love with Jesus. I love God. Awesome. Awesome. How do we quantify? How do we evidence? I mean, how do we really explore the authenticity of a person who says they really love God? I mean, do they really love God? How do we know when we can't see it demonstrated? Okay, but you see it demonstrated when they're able to love somebody who's unlovable, when they're able to love somebody who is difficult and hard and, and maybe sometimes seemingly impossible to love. That's how... The invisible becomes visible. The evidence of what is invisible becomes visible. So loving difficult people loves, uh, forces us to reflect and draw strength from God who first loved us. See, here's the thing. God has rigged it. And he will, by his grace, put difficult people in your life and in your presence. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants you to know how much he loves you. And so this is how it works. He puts a difficult person in your presence, in your life, and you're just like, I'm having the hardest time loving them. I don't want to. And you're, God, you're going to have to help me love them. And so our, we look to God and we give a little token prayer. God, help me love them. And then we kind of try to do it in our own power, right? But if we, if we get what he's saying and we understand this, what happens is we suddenly, there's a couple steps here that come into place. And, and it will compel, it will, it'll drive us to a deeper understanding of God's love for us and, a, and a, an ability to love other people. Let me show you how that, how that works. God's love demonstrated through Jesus, poured out through the Holy Spirit, is the most visible, uh, as it supernaturally empowers me to love those who are difficult to love. And so a couple, couple thoughts, I'm going to explain how this works out. What does it mean for God's love to be perfected in us? Well, just three quick thoughts. We are loving one another. This is what the passage says. Three times it's mentioned in these verses. And, and here's what it describes for us. If you just look at the principles there. It, it shows us that we are loving one another. It's perfecting us when we are loving one another. When God's spirit is abiding in us. And when fear is cast out, is cast out of us. And you say, well, so how, how do I know if God's love is, is, is coming to its completion, is working out in me, is really working? How do I know when God's love is really transforming me? When gospel transformation is happening in my life as a result of God's love for me? How do I know that? Well, do you love other people? I mean, is God's spirit abiding in you? Is it, you, you know, the presence of God is, is evident there. Are you a fearful person? Are you afraid of stuff constantly? Or are you resting and drawing strength and security and confidence in the fact that that perfect love casts out fear? Fear has been cast out. That, that's the ways some of the ways that we can know and so when we find it difficult let me get just as practical as i can we find it difficult to love others we can do one of two things number one we can just refuse to love them 
Pastor David, you just don't understand. You don't understand what they did to me. You don't understand how they harmed me. You don't understand how they wounded me. You don't understand how annoying they are. You don't know how sort of frustrating they are. You don't understand how... You, you don't understand. You can just refuse, and that's fine. Do that. If you want to do that, that's fine. But understand that uh, you're more, uh, morally obligated to love them, and, and if you refuse, then you're, that's evidence that God's love is, A, not in you, or B, not growing in you. And that's just a commitment to be immature. It's a commitment to pause and say, I will be in disobedience against the Holy God. It's a commitment to say that this sin against this person is so important that I think it's more valuable than the the love of God demonstrated to me through the cross, which is to say that I will not go to the tables to partake in the Lord's Supper in a minute because I will harbor this as more valuable than the cross. And we're actually told in Scripture that if you have a sin in your heart towards somebody else, if you have possibly offended somebody, if you have sinned towards somebody, if you have done something that and you have wronged somebody or maybe think you might have possibly wronged somebody, then do not go and bring your offering or for that matter, partake in the Lord's Supper and celebrate the death, burial, resurrection of Christ until you have made whatever attempts you can make so as to try to make things right with that person, to be at peace as much as it's contingent upon you. But you can refuse or you can repent. And in repenting, here's the principle he gives us. You remember God's unconditional, unmerited love for me. See, this is where I said God's rigged it because what happens is that in being confronted with people difficult to love, it forces us back to God. See, apart from difficult people, sometimes we never even think about the love of God for us. But when, we, when we're confronted with difficult people, we're, we're confronted with situations where it's difficult to love people, we're forced to have to go back to God and go, God, I need help. And God says, okay, let's first let's start, let's do a little refresher. Remember what you look like apart from me. Remember what you're like apart from me. Remember, you weren't exactly the most lovable person yourself, right? You know, I mean, you know, come on, let's be honest here. And so you, you, you remember God's unconditional, unmerited love for me. Think about that. And then, then you rekindle. The, the response to that is we love God because he loved us. So when I am confronted with God's love anew and afresh for me when I was unlovable, it compels me again anew and afresh to love God. And so now it, it rekindles. It, it fans the flame of my love. It brings revival and renewal and restoration in my heart as I think about it. Man, God, so gracious to love me when I was unlovable. Man, it just makes me grow in my affections to God. How could he love me like that? And, and I, you know, I knew he loved me, but now that I'm confronted by this person that's so difficult for me to love, I am and has wounded me so deeply. I now am that much more convinced of God's unconditional love for me. Man, remember, rekindle, and then last, reestablish. Reestablish your love for others or for that brother or sister or person or friend or family member. Reestablish that love. Reestablish that love. I'm not going to get into all the different scenarios, but certainly there are circumstances and different things where things are done to people that are, um, you know, that that because of the nature of the the difficulty or the, the offense or whatever, maybe there's not going to be 
uh, a restoration of a friendship or a relationship or whatever. Maybe there's not, you know, there's, there's, there are circumstances and we can go into different things and talk about what about this scenario? What about that scenario? What about this? What about that? Whatever all day long. But in, in generality, we know this to be true. Certainly as much as in a given situation, it is appropriate and it is possible. We are to reestablish love towards the other person and that creates the space for reconciliation to happen. Creates the space. It might provide forgiveness, but it doesn't necessarily bring reconciliation. But it does create the space for reconciliation. And so you do what you have to do to love as best you can. And so a final question to ask is, could someone watching you, could someone observing your life, can they learn of the greatness of God's love for you by the quality and the degree of the love that you show to others? Could they understand God's love for you, the greatness of God's love by the quality of your love you show to others, like your spouse, your family, your neighbors, other believers, people at work, people in the culture, people different than you? Can they learn about God's love for you and the greatness of God's love for you and, and consequently His love for them by how you love other people unconditionally, sacrificially? Can they love that? learn about that love and is it contagious there's a story i heard years ago uh there was a monk named telemachus who lived around 400 a.d true story and he lived a simple holy aesthetic life in a modern turkey what is modern day turkey um back in 400 a.d and he was compelled for various reasons to get up and to 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 leave his monastery and to travel to rome and it was a difficult journey, but he made his way to Rome. And upon his arrival, he was shocked to observe, was shocked to observe the excitement in the city as crowds were pouring into the Colosseum to witness the gladiator fights. Men fighting to the death for sport and entertainment of crowds climbing into, uh, coming down, uh, sitting in the, in the, in the stands there and observing and watching and seeing, um, this fight going on. He was, he couldn't handle anymore and he, he climbed down into the arena, down to the dirt and, and ran across with his cloaked in his monastic robe and bald and, um, kind of a, a large, imposing man, but, but gracious and kind and, and, and humble, makes his way across and gets it between these two gladiators and separates them. And people are astonished as they're watching, like, what, what's going on here? What, what's happening? People couldn't believe what they were seeing. They stood stunned and confused. The crowd began to grow, to grow quiet. Telemachus then shouted, Do not return God's mercy for sparing your life from your enemies by murdering each other. Do not return God's mercy to you by sparing your lives by murdering one another. In the name of Christ, stop. And the crowd began to get frustrated that this man would interrupt their sport and their entertainment. And they began to yell. One man began to yell, this is no place for preaching. Down with him. And they began to say, recipe ferum, receive the steel. Run him through. Run him through. And they began to chant. The gladiator ran him through with a sword. Some of the crowd even threw stones down upon the monk as he was lying on the Colosseum floor in a pool of blood. And he had died, but not in vain. As the shocking sight of his death 
and uh, his words ringing out. Do not return God's mercy for sparing your lives by murdering one another. The, the truth of those words begin to echo. In Christ's name, stop. One by one, the hearts of the people began to get disgusted with what they had just observed and seen. And one by one, an individual popped up and walked out. And another popped up and walked down. The family got up and walked out. Some other groups got up. And one by one, they, they funneled out. That was the last day that the gladiator fights ever took place in the Colosseum. It was just a few years later that it was actually banned by the emperor. And there was never a fight for the shedding of blood for sport and entertainment held in Rome ever again. It was their love for entertainment of choice that was more important than the monk's life. See, their sin, they love their entertainment. They love this thing. And their sin was to love that more than an individual's life or the lives of the people fighting. Their sin caused his death. Likewise, the sins that we pursue, our pleasure, our escape, or our hatred towards other things that we just we love, these things have resulted in Christ's death. We have crucified Christ because of our sin. How can we return God's mercy poured out on us through Jesus' death for us to others with anger and with bitterness? And with an unloving heart towards others. How can we do that? When Christ has loved us, when we did not deserve it, how can we turn that by murdering other people with our anger, with our thoughts, with our feelings? Withholding affection and care and unconditional love that Christ has poured out to us that we could pour out to other people. In Christ, we have been loved unconditionally and God compels us to love other people. 